All right, let's pause and pray. Father God, we are a grateful people. There's a book before us in which you've spoken and which you've detailed how you've done what you've done to make us who we are and to give us the hope that we have. And so I pray that these meditations of this hour would be pleasing in your sight and edifying to our hearts. I pray that your word, as it is living and active, would reveal itself to each of our hearts as, as that. I pray, Lord, that um, the joy of this season would find its center and focus on your gift. And I pray that you would tear down the walls of finding our supreme joy and peace in anything but what you have given in this season that we celebrate. And so I pray that as we open this gospel, that the good news would change us every day that we open it. And that we would never find an end to our amazement in the glory of Jesus Christ who came for sinners such as us. So only by your Spirit working in each of our hearts is any of what I've asked possible. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This has got to be the most, at least preached, if not talked about, genealogy in the whole world. We really don't look at the Old Testament and, and look at the book of Chronicles and look at the, uh, the genealogy of the kings of Israel that often at all. And if you were honest, maybe you read over those things. Um, but when we get to the Gospels, especially in Matthew and Luke, only in Matthew and Luke. Do we really stop to investigate where Jesus came from? And the obvious things that we find are, are the things that we really should meditate on. It's, it's one of those examples of, you know, just because it's obvious, don't be afraid to meditate on it. That's what we should meditate on. And the obvious thing here in the genealogy of Jesus, right, is the people that are involved how God brought the Messiah here throughout all of human history, throughout all these different stories, throughout all these different people, throughout all the different intersections of their lives, and some of them entangled by sin. And, and yet, he had a plan and a purpose, sovereignly working through all of that to bring about what those people needed. So what you see in the genealogy of Jesus Christ is human beings enslaved to sin through whom God is delivering His promise to save them. And it's nothing short of astonishing that Jesus comes through this line of mixed up people. He is what they all need. And in Matthew's Gospel, we're starting with Abraham. So from Abraham 
down to Mary and Joseph. Jesus is what they should be looking forward to, and Jesus is what they need. And the amazing thing is how God associates with sinners to bring them into his plan to deliver them, and they have no earthly merit to deserve to be listed in such a royal genealogy. But they are. But they're included. But God is not afraid to associate himself and his great plan of redemptive history in delivering his son to the world through these types of people. What does that tell you about who God is? That tells you what his heart is towards sinners and how he presses in and how he engages and how he's not afraid to exercise great grace and patience with us despite how awfully disgusting we can be at times. So the amazing thing about the genealogy of Jesus is that, is that not only does he bring him into the world from the eternal bond that they've had and and perfection, but he he engages the filthy sinner in order to do so. There is no God like our God. So let's think about for a second. Not all the gospel writers include the genealogy. So why is Matthew including the genealogy? Well, Matthew's purpose, as we discovered last time, is to make sure that his readers, which are mostly Jewish converts to Christianity, understand that Jesus is the rightful Jewish Messiah. Okay, That, that he fulfills all promise and prophecy. That this is actually him, that Jesus from Nazareth, whose, whose earthly father Joseph was the carpenter from Nazareth, this is actually the Messiah that we have been waiting for, for all of these years. And because of how they understood Jesus to get here, who they understood his parents to be, and how they understood Mary to be with child, makes them write Jesus off as the Messiah, while those things should actually make them understand Jesus as the Messiah. He comes through the line of David. He's virgin born and conceived. He is a miracle that's laying in a manger in that stable in Bethlehem. And Matthew is, is taking the opportunity to help his Jewish readers look back through their scriptures that they know and understand there is no doubt that Jesus is the Christ. And for all people, for all the readers, the ones that aren't Jewish and the ones that are to come, we're to understand not only the same thing, but the fact that he is the Savior for all people. Because the genealogy of Jesus does not just include Jews. It has Gentiles. It has prostitutes. It has murderers. It has adulterers. It has idolaters. It has those who are envious and, and covetous. It has people that represent what all people are. 
So the genealogy not only tells us that Jesus is the Messiah, but that Jesus is the Savior, and therefore the only way to the Father. That when you go down through the line of history, it all leads to this great fulfillment of promise and prophecy in Jesus. And Matthew in his gospel is not trying to paint over history of how Jesus got here, right? He, he kind of goes out of his way to include or make sure we know who was part of this. You could stop with Abraham, and we will in a little while, to investigate who's Abraham. And while Abraham is credited with a faith that led to his righteousness, he believed God, it's counted him as righteousness, we, as we went through Genesis as a church, understand who Abraham was before that. We understand what he did. You go to his grandson Jacob. Oh my gosh. Jacob means deceiver. That's who he is. And I digress. We'll look at all that in a minute. But safe to say that look at the years that God maintained patience and grace to get these people, and including us, the Savior who's going to set us free from our enslavement to sin. You're talking about thousands of years of patience. None of us have ever been that patient. None of us have ever been that gracious. None of us have ever been willing to associate with people so lowly and vile in the hopes of, of seeing what comes about for good. This is completely God's work here, right? And, and this is what He's done for us in our enslavement to sin and all these people in the genealogy. It's, it's Romans 8, 3, 3, 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. He used these sinful human beings and their flesh to bring about in the flesh Jesus, the perfection and the majesty and the glory of God incarnate, in order to then condemn our sins in that flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law that Jesus met gets fulfilled in the flesh and transferred to us. So the, the fleshly incarnation happens, has to happen, in order that we be justified and our sins be rightly condemned. Otherwise, God, otherwise God's not just, or the justifier. He has to punish sin. And He's going to set us free. And that happens... In Jesus, who has to be born of the flesh. So the question that was always asked during Jesus' life, right? Certainly as he made the claims that he made and did the things that he did, and what people said about him, if, if the things that they said about him were true, 
Everyone is asking because the Messiah, the idea of the Messiah is on people's minds. It's not some arbitrary thing that only some people picked up in the Old Testament scriptures. It's, some, it's, it's a highlight of what they're looking for. Someone's coming. In the power of God, in these miraculous ways, to fulfill all these promises, to save God's people, to give them a heart of flesh, and to dwell with them forever. Somebody's going to do that from God, by God, right? And the way that this is set up in the, in the Jewish scriptures is that you have these, um, these fathers of the faith, these pillars. You have Abraham, and you have Moses, and you have David. These big pillars that God made these promises to and, and did these amazing things with, and they're heralded. Uh, throughout the centuries as these great men of God. In all actuality, they weren't great men of God. Uh, They were used mightily by God to do great things. Or he did great things through them. They're weak men. They're stuttering men. They're murderous, adulterous men. But God associated himself and his glory and his goodness and his grace and his patience with them and made promises to mankind through them and and used them as symbols and foreshadows of what is to come. And he fulfilled all the promises that he made them in Jesus. Let's start with Abraham. Genesis 15, 5 through 6, And he brought him outside, Abraham, and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So there's the first idea with Abraham, that this this old man... And his old wife, who's barren, are going to be used of the Lord to bless the world. That through them, okay, is coming this innumerable uh, people. And what Abraham do? He believed that. He believed what seems impossible because God said it. And if God declares it, That's the way it is. So he's righteous because he believes God. And then you get to Genesis 17, and it it goes even deeper. He begins to promise him um, more things. And there's discussion there about an offspring. And the whole time that we read that about the offspring in Genesis 17, we think about, or they think about, the Jewish people. And we'll see later on in Galatians that that's not exactly what God's talking about. God's talking about Jesus, according to Galatians 3. That we're not talking about a plural offspring here. We're talking about a singular offspring. It's in the singular. There is no plural nature to it. There's somebody who's going to receive all of these 
land promises, all of these blessing promises. And if through Abraham the whole world is going to be blessed, well, how? what's the greatest way that the whole world is blessed? Through Jesus coming to do what he did, the gospel, the good news, that he's come to save sinners, that are not only Jewish sinners, but sinners of all kind. So Genesis 17 is, is talking about how uh, God's going to establish this covenant between uh, himself and, and the offspring of Abraham, singular. It's going to be an everlasting covenant. And, and he's going to inherit this land, all the land, for an everlasting possession. Fast forward to Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Jesus receives his inheritance. He receives the deed, the, the inheritance deed, the land deed, to all of the universe. And then he begins to unleash the wrath of God on everything that doesn't belong in his inheritance. So those are the promises to Abraham. And then let's see what Jesus says about it. John 8, 56 through 58. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says, Your father Abraham... Right? He's appealing to their pride that they have descended from Abraham. He says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He understands what Abraham has faith in. It's in the promises of God that are fulfilled in an offspring. And he looked forward, and even Hebrews 11 tells us this, he looked forward to something greater than he was going to see or inherit here. He looked forward to a city whose builder and developer was God. He believed that the Lord would not only do what he said, but would deliver him to enjoy his presence forever. And he knew, he knew, because the gospel was proclaimed to Abraham, he knew that this was coming through somebody, down his line. So Abraham's looking for a Messiah. Abraham's having faith in a Messiah because that's the promise of God. And if the Messiah is from God, then he will accomplish the will of God. Now, the main parts of this genealogy are verse 1, right? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's highlighting the rightful um, inheritance of Jesus through Abraham and the rightful heir to the throne through David. Okay, so we, we've looked at Abraham as a major part of this. Now let's look at David. In 2 Samuel 7, David has promised some things. Here's 12 through 16. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down, this is the Lord speaking to David, with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That sounds like Solomon. Solomon gets to build the temple, doesn't he? 
But notice the language that he's using. His kingdom forever. Solomon died. The reign of Solomon ended. And in fact, the reign of uh, the kings that descended from him and Rehoboam ended eventually. The deportation to Babylon. I will be to him a father. Let me get you there. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. The iniquity are iniquity. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established for how long? Forever. What is that throne? It's the throne that the one who sits on reigns over God's people. As a nation, when David is king, Israel is his nation. They're his people, right? And sojourners can come in, and there's provision for that, and there's parts of the law that allow for them to be engrafted into Israel, right? So that's always been a thing. But, but the throne that Jesus inherits is a throne to reign over God's people forever. And David's just a figurehead for the time being for that. He's a, he's a placeholder on the throne for what's coming. Isaiah 11.1 1, prophecy. There shall come forth from a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse's the father of David. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Psalm 132.11, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. So when we go through the genealogy and we discover not only does he come from Abraham, but that he comes from David, we understand that he's a king. He's a king. This is what Jesus says about it. Who do you th what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. Before Matthew compiles and records the genealogy, they know it. The anointed one, the Messiah, is going to be who? A son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And that's a quote directly from Psalm 110. One. In other words, Jesus understands that David understands that that son who's going to inherit the throne is not a son, but Lord. That the eternal throne or, or place on the throne that the Lord promised David may actually come physically through his line, but he's going to be Lord. Nobody else has that title. No other human. And if David is saying that to him, 
He's looking at him as something other than an actual physical grandson, so to speak. He's looking at him as how everyone in Jesus' line should look at him, including Mary, Lord. He's Lord. But he has to come through the flesh, partly. Now, let's investigate some of the sinners that Jesus is saving. Of course, we know Abraham, how willing he was to give up his wife, Sarah, and to kind of fib a little, even though she was a sister of his. Um, She was first his wife because they had been married for several years. So in order to save his life like a coward, he was going to default to the fact that she's his sister, actually. Um, Then you get to Jacob, the great deceiver, conspires with his mother to trick his father to receive a blessing, and yet God ends up using him, renames him Israel after this great wrestling match in which Jacob strove with God, and then you get very quickly in the genealogy, in verse um, 3, to Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Genesis 38, you know it, Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah, who being distraught at the loss of her husband and not being promised any of his brothers to carry on his name or his line, uh, made herself appear as a prostitute, and Judah went into her and conceived. So there's a whole mess there. Then you get to Rahab. Who's Rahab? Well, Joshua 6.25, Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive, and she has lived in Israel to this day, because she hid the messengers from Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. She's a prostitute who showed not only sensitivities, but but great grace and help to Israel. And so Joshua saved her when they went into the land, and she lived in Israel from that day forward. But she started out as what? A prostitute, also a Gentile. Ruth, her future daughter-in-law, Gentile, David and Bathsheba. This is is amazing how Matthew wrote this in verse 6, right? Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. He doesn't even list her name. He lists how they got Solomon which would draw everybody's attention back to the fact that David, this great king, whom you're putting a lot of faith in, who is not the one who's going to sit on the throne forever, David um, committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had Uriah killed. The great king. (laughs) Otherwise, he's trying to position everybody in their humanity so that when he gets to the Messiah, we can celebrate. Then you fast forward to uh, 
Jeconiah. It's said of Jeconiah that he walked in wickedness all the days of his life. He's a king of Israel. Wicked all the days of his life. And then finally, at the end, you read this, Jacob, verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Uh, Mary lived with the stigma of being sexually immoral. So you have this line that's, I mean, something to brag about. You come from kings, right? come from Abraham, you come from David, you come from all the kings of Israel, even though some of them are wicked. But it's a mess. And if, and if you're the Messiah, if you're Jesus, if you're eternal God, and you come to earth, wouldn't it be demeaning to you? Kind of a huge, major demotion and to be associated, that this be your line? Like, wouldn't you want it to be as amazing and as perfect as it could be, but that's not what he's entering into. Jesus is entering into the mess that has happened because of the fall. He's entering in in the flesh that has been not only tainted by sin, but killed by sin and enslaved to sin and death so that he can set it free in the flesh. And so if he's going to enter into that, this is inevitably what he's going to have to come through. And is his reputation tainted because his people are tainted? No. No. He is the Christ. He's the promise. He's the fulfillment. He's the prophecy. He's worthy. And that's all we're saying here in the genealogy is that despite all these people, it still tells us that Jesus is the only rightful seed and heir. He's the only offspring that can fulfill any promises made in all the scriptures. Galatians 3.16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Abraham, David, Rahab, Tamar, Judah, Mary, none of them and none of us deserved to receive this gift. But God gave namely because of that. He presented us with the only one worthy so that we might become worthy. He, he exhibits a graciousness and a generosity that we can't even get close to. He is freely sharing with us the greatest thing that he has, an eternal relationship with his perfect son. And he gives him to unworthy people. Because that's who he is. 
This is who God is. He's not up in heaven slapping your spirit with a ruler every time you screw up. He is pressing in to sinners in order that they might become a holy people, a royal nation. And through His Son, that's possible. Through His Son, we can live in the power and with the ability to exercise the generosity and the grace that He does. To exercise the love and the patience and the mercy that He does. To have even a desire to press in to those that have sinned in great and awesome ways and present to them a hope that will lead them to another new day out of that. We have eyes for that. We have a heart for that because of Him. Galatians 3, 23-29, Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. You know what he's telling us? Not only does God identify and associate with sinners, but he so identifies and associates with sinners that we can't even make distinctions between Jew, Greek, slave, free. That's not even the most important thing about us. The most important thing about us is that we're in Christ. One. That's how he calls the church his body. We are that connected, that associated, that intimately intertwined with who he is that we are his body. You separate the head from the body, then there's no more connection. But if the head's on the body, there is great connection. That's who we are, first and foremost. And so while everybody in this genealogy can look at their lives and be like, I'm this, and I'm that, and you're this, and you're that, we can also look at our own lives and be like, well, I'm this as well. But we're supposed to understand that God's purposes and God's plan and God's provision for the fact that you and I are who we are is this baby who, who, who was to personify and display the glory of God before us, completely devoted to the Father's will according to the law and to righteousness, but completely set on delivering great grace and mercy as that's also the Father's will. So that everybody who's ever lived becomes something other than they are. Our culture wants to do that by changing their gender or cha- you know, changing their identity. I identify as a dinosaur now or whatever. But the, the greatest identity that you can move into 
is to be named in Christ because it starts with him and it ends with him. And if you try and position yourself before God in your own name, you're not worthy. But if you are positioned before the Father in Jesus, you are an heir according to promise. To reign with him as he sits on his throne and to receive the eternal blessing of the Father in a land that he's promised. So, do you receive the gift that he freely gave? And if you do, do you walk in joy, thankfulness, and the reality of what it means to be in Christ? It's a gift that changes you forever. It's not a gift that's going to end up at savers. It's a gift that will leave you eternally and forever changed until you inherit what Christ has inherited. Okay? So I pray that you would reflect now on those things, respond to the Lord, and then we'll stand together and sing.